My name's Matt. If you've been just started coming here the last few weeks, you, I might be a new face to you. And uh, but I, I, I do work here, and so <laughs> I do the bulk of the teaching. And um, and and so um, I yeah, I'm happy to be back. And I, I've been on a study sabbatical, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, <clears throat> but it, I'm gonna we just have a one-off this morning sermon. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. So if you've got your Bible, go to Acts three. Acts three. And he, so here's what I'm going to read. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, it's going to, we're going to start in Acts 3, looking at uh, verse 1, right at the very beginning there. And then we'll just read down to verse 10, and then we'll skip to chapter 4 and pick up in 1 and go to 13. It'll be on the screen, so if you're um, struggling to follow along. And so if you're, if you're able uh, to stand for the reading of God's Word, do so um, now. And if not, that's okay. And so, I'm going to pick up Acts 3, verse 1. Now, uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask uh, alms of those entering the temple. And, And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting uh, to receive something from them. And, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I, I do have I give to you. In the, name of Je- in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him uh, walking and praising God, and, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now this is where... Peter launches into a crazy, awesome sermon, but we're going to skip that, and we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. And, and, and as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, what power, by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So, so like I said, I, 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 haven't, I haven't been up here since late June, I think it was. Um, I was on a, my study sabbatical that I take every summer. And, um, and so I'm super grateful to the Board of Elders that allow and encourage that yearly rhythm for me to kind of just step out and be away and, like I said, study and things like that. I could summarize what I do during that time if you're curious. I could summarize it with a word like health. It's just it's a time for health. I focus, obviously, on physical health. You know, I listen to my body and pay attention. What are the needs? What have I neglected? What have I compromised in my physical health? And um, I, I focus on family health. You know, it gives me a time to have real deliberate, undiffused attention to my kids and my wife. Um, I'm not much good to you if my family falls apart. And, and so I, I spend an intensified time doing um, that, um, which um, is, is interesting, and I can tell a lot of stories about that. Um, but then there's, um, there's just the organizational health, too. Like, I'm focusing, I'm trying to think about that. I'm trying to give an opportunity for other voices and other gifts within the body of this church to come up and rise up and take part. I mean, the reality is it is good for me and it is good for you to realize that all, albeit hopefully I am helpful to some degree to the church here, I am not indispensable. Uh, and I need to know that, um, and, and you should feel that as well. It's better for the organization um, to realize that it doesn't, uh, it, you know, I'm not part of, the, you know, mission critical, right? So um, that's really important. And then the big one, of course, is for me to just focus on my spiritual health. Um, my, own, my own relationship with Jesus. And, and I want to drill down on that a little bit uh, today. That's like my main focus today. And so I recognized recently, this past July, as I was taking my time away, that I, don't, I can't recall, I can't recollect at least ever talking about it with you. I mean, I'm, I think I probably have been up here in the summers before and said, hey, I was gone. This, thanks, I got time away and I rested. But I've never really taught or shared uh, essentially this. Why? Like, what, why sabbatical? Why do your pastors sabbatical? And I just felt the Spirit, particularly this time around, as I was praying and, and, and studying. I, I got up almost, well, I'd get up four or five days a week throughout the whole month of July, and I would just spend two to three hours in the morning of just read and write, read and write. It's just what I did. And you, that, this just, I just felt compelled. I want to share with you. I want to teach on it. A little bit on it. There's so much I could say, um, and I, but I want to spend some time on the rhythm of, of sabbatical and why I do it. Uh, I want to be appropriately transparent with you as your pastor, you know. And and so there are things I want you to understand about um, how I'm trying to live my life, how I'm trying to both model and invite you into a particular way of life. And um, and so <laughs> it might feel a little bit different today, sermon-wise. And if you're bothered by that, I'm sorry. I won't do this very often. Um, but hopefully it's helpful to some degree as well. Um, and, and just in terms of getting, uh, helping you get a better understanding of me and our heart here at the Oaks and, and uh, what we want for you as well as pastors. And so, so to begin, I, I, 
I want to call your attention to this incredibly instructive story in Acts 8. We didn't read it. Uh, I'll just tell a little bit about it. Uh, it's this story about the evangelist and deacon Philip and the apostles, Peter and John, again, those guys that we just read about, and a magician named Simon. And some of you might be familiar with the little short story that Luke tells us. So Simon was this guy. He's this crazy guy. We don't have a ton of information, but he's this, he's this wizard-like figure. He's a magician. He's this local famous guy down in the city of Samaria. And everybody knew who he was. He could do these miraculous works. I don't know exactly what those were, but he was this impressive guy, and he had quite the following, and he had a lot of attention upon him. Well, around this time, this is the beginning of the Jesus movement, um, the way, as it was called. It was, it was, it was new, and it was blossom, blossoming, but, but by this time, persecution is breaking out in Jerusalem. So because of that, Philip heads down to Samaria, and he starts to uh, preach the gospel, and people are hearing it. People are hearing it, confessing, getting baptized. It's a crazy movement that happens, and the apostles hear about it in Jerusalem. Like, this is crazy. People are getting saved, like, saved. Going to Jesus in Samaria. And Jesus was right. Like, this thing was going to spread. Um, and so, because of that, uh, uh, Peter and John are going to head down, and they want to they they lay eyes on this. They want to see it for themselves, or what Philip is, is taking part in. Well, at around this time, Simon is taken in by this. He's witnessing this. He's hearing these gospel messages, and he's totally intrigued. And so what he does is he also confesses and gets baptized. And, you know, to the degree to which where his heart actually was, I, I, we don't know. I mean, was it a genuine confession? I, I, I can't speak to that. Uh, but we, Luke tells us that he does come under like the tutelage, the discipleship, if you will, of Philip. He, he starts to follow him around. Like I said, he is, he is baptizing. He's part of this now movement of Christianity. Um, and so once Peter and John arrive, they're laying hand. This is just like a special time in the, in the, in this new, the new fledgling birth of the church and all of this. And, and so Peter and John are laying their hands on people, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And we're not, told, we're not told what exactly is taking place, but something miraculous was taking place. Something wonderful and crazy, um, magical even, enchanting. And, and Simon the magician sees this, and he's like, I want in on that. And so what he does is he approaches um, Peter, and he apparently <laughs> is just amazed, and he wants this a powerful ability. And I'll just read you. Uh, what Luke tells us, this is Acts 8, verse 18 and 19. Now, uh, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on uh, the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Uh, this is where the word simony comes from, actually, in case you've ever heard that word. It's from the story. Um, the, the idea of buying privileges and powers in the church, but anyway. So uh, he, he sees this power. He offers them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may be, receive the Holy Spirit. How do you think that went over with Peter? So what happens next is Peter just rebukes him. Your heart's not right with God, man. This is not okay. This is a non-starter. You can't buy power like that. The Spirit goes where he wants. This is, you're, you've got, you've been, you, you have, you're headed for a train wreck here. So he rebukes him. And I don't know if it really strikes the heart of Simon. I don't know, but he does. He, he goes to Peter and he's like, oh, 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 okay, uh, would you pray for me? <laughs> would you pray for me that this, like, bad things don't happen to me? 
and, and, and that's it. Luke just moves on. Like, Luke, come on. But he doesn't tell us what happens after that. He just leaves us hanging there. And so we don't know uh, what happens. There's, there's a lot to Simon's story that we, we just can't fully, I wish we could know, but we can't. But it's clear that he became more enamored with the performance and the power of the gospel mission than the gift of the Spirit himself. That much we can know. And I think that, at least to some degree, this is why Luke tells the story. Um, he just seemed to be taken in by the ability to wow people more than simply witnessing the mysterious uh, work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I've been thinking about that all July. Just the, the fact of what it is to be enamored with the showmanship, the performance of Christian ministry, than just the gift of the Spirit, the gift of Jesus, the gift of the gospel. He was so enamored with it, he, he tried to manipulate and purchase the gift rather than just worship God and the giver of good things. And whether his heart turned and fully repented, we just don't know. But it's little stories like this, and there's other ones that I can go to. There's actually, the Bible's really a fantastic document of really poor leadership. <laughs> so it's actually really helpful. Uh, but it's little stories like Simon in the Bible that I try to keep aware of and stamped in my own memory like a warning label. Because men and women, um, and certainly lead pastors like myself, they're tempted by what um, the, the late pastor, author, Eugene Peterson, um, he called it ecclesiastical pornography. In other words, what he said was, is it's the lust for domination, gratification, uninvolved and impersonal. Likes being fast and furious. <laughs> Expansion, experience, big things for God, nothing personal and slow about it. No long-suffering. Leadership that's not really in it for you, but leadership that's actually underneath, it's, they're in it for themselves and their own glory and their own achievement. Domination, gratification, uninvolved and impersonal. That sounds a lot like the kind of spirituality I think had gripped Simon's imagination and at least infected his motivation in terms of being involved in the movement of Jesus. Simon, you could say it this way, Simon had blurred the lines of authenticity and performance. And that's really difficult. I know as one who holds a position of you know, speaking, teaching, authority, those sorts of things, those lines can get blurred sometimes. Um, it happens to you almost subtly, little bit by little bit, and you don't realize that it's taking place. And, and this is the mistake that eludes, um, and uh, this is the mistake that happens within the modern-day church and even the parachurch all the time. It's sadly too common to fall victim to a spiritual vocation that looks a lot like a modern-day um, marriage reality show, right? Uh, fast and flashy theatrics as a substitute for slow, personal, real relationship that's bathed in service and sacrifice, the temptation is to desire influence over loving impact, charisma over character. So lots of men get up into these kinds of pulpits and, 
and, and they have all the charisma, but underneath they lack the character. And unfortunately, sometimes congregations just continue to perpetuate it and allow it to take place. We all know this probably. We've seen enough fallen pastors to know that it's true. In writing about um, his own struggle, uh, Pastor Peterson, um, writing about his own struggle and discovery of what healthy pastoring looks like, he wrote this. The so-called spirituality that was handed to me by those who put me to the task of pastoral work was not adequate. I do not find the emaciated, exhausted spirituality of institutional careerism adequate. I do not find the veneered cosmetic spirituality of personal charisma adequate. I require something biblically spiritual, rooted and cultivated in creation and covenant, leisurely in Christ, soaked in the spirit. Here's the thing. What, what we see in Acts 4, the, 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 the text that we read, this, this story of Peter and John and the early movement of Christianity, it is a testament to something that is radically different than the exhausted cosmetic spirituality that Eugene was talking about, that we see sometimes, maybe on TV or we encounter in churches. Maybe we see it in our friends at times or even we worry about it in ourselves. If you recall, Peter and John had just participated in this wonderful, unbelievable, mysterious, you know, movements of God. They have been agents in God healing a man who couldn't walk. And it, of course, creates this stir in people, rightly so. People want to know, what is this? Who, what, this guy, these guys just healed this man. And so Peter launches into um, an explanation of the good news of Jesus, and he calls people to a life of repentance. You know, he just preaches these powerful sermons. And the religious leaders are annoyed because at this time, obviously, it hasn't been that long since the crucifixion of Jesus. They are worried and bothered and annoyed by this nagging, persistent movement of Jesus in his particular way. And they thought that they had squashed it. And so, uh, so they snatched them up immediately, right in the middle, actually, right in the middle of, their, their, of Peter's preaching. Um, and they have them arrested. And, and we'll just read it again. This is Acts 4, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power and by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there's a few insightful things about that little sermonette. I wish I could preach like that. I wish I could respond like that when you're facing danger. I wish I could respond like that in moments that are really tense. Clearly what Jesus had previously told them, that don't worry, in the moment of opposition and danger, the Spirit will instruct you of what to say. And that's what's happening right here, by the way. But notice, I'm sure as you did already, and this is all I really want you to, what I really want to impact you this morning and what I want you to leave with. What I want us to notice is that how people respond to what they're seeing and they're sensing in these two guys. What did they say? 
when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Why? They had recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's it. Been with Jesus. What really strikes me in this response isn't that these guys were just courageous in a moment of opposition. Because as one scholar put it, even a fool can be courageous in the face of danger. I've seen plenty of fools stand up and wag their finger and scream and yell in the face of opposition. That's not what they're seeing exactly. Peter and John just weren't bold. They had, a, they had clarity. They had, a, they had a sharp edge to them. It was like they knew exactly who they were. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew, and therefore, they, they, they knew exactly what Jesus was about. And then, and, and then, therefore, they knew exactly what they were about. They were humble but courageous at the same time. This weird paradox that just can only be felt sometimes and were struck by it. You see, it wasn't their presentation that gripped people. It was their presence. It was how they showed up in a room. How do you show up in a room? When you show up in a room and you leave, what is it that people think? What do they feel? What do they sense about you? These men, for whatever it was, when they showed up in a room and they spoke, people said, I recognize that. I've felt it and I've seen it before. And it's very different. There was something familiar about it, right? You see, see Simon um, and the magician was after power. He was after flashy performance. Peter and John had this authentic presence to them. They weren't simply talking out of a heady learned space. There's a big difference. They were, they were speaking out of an authentic uh, experienced inner space. You know, like, it, 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 I don't mean this to be disrespectful or insulting to anyone, but re remember a couple years ago, everybody was an ep epidemiologist? Do you remember this? Like all of us, me too. Me too. I was an expert because I read a couple things online. Did any of you actually talk to an epidemiologist? I'm not, like, accusing you that you didn't. Some of you probably did. When I, I did, and I was like, oh, there's a really big difference between talking to you and the rest of us that think we're epidemiologists. <laughs> like there was, a, there was like, you've, exp you've been around this. You've spent time in this. There's a big difference about speaking out of something that you just, you've just read or you've studied or you've thought about or you've heard about. And actually, you've just been soaking in the very real presence of it. That's what they experienced when they were around Peter and John. There was something familiar about their presence that they recognized, they say, and it, they had witnessed the kind of humble but courageous clarity before. You know, and in Matthew 7, as Jesus wraps up his famous Sermon on the Mount, this is how they responded then. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This makes all the more sense why the crowds concluded this, this concluding remark isn't on their talents or their eloquence, but the fact that they could tell that they had been with Jesus, been with him. So here's the thing. When you put these two stories together, when you, when you think about Acts 8, Simon the magician, and this, this weird motivation that he had, and 
you, you look at Peter and John and, and, and this scene after they've been arrested, and you put it all together, um, and the fact that one was about performance, one is clearly about presence. What I hope you, what I hope at least is in terms of a primer, you get an understanding, or you start down a, a path of getting an understanding of what sabbatical is about. Why, why a pastor would sabbatical? Why maybe you need to think about sabbaticals in your own life? You see, it is one of the best weapons that I know of against cosmetic spirituality and performative pastoring. It's not the only, but it is a primary weapon to avoid, to fight against a life devoid of the Spirit and that is not bathed in time with Jesus. To be clear, to be clear, it's not like I don't or can't spend time with Jesus during my regular rhythms of work, like this past week and this upcoming week. Uh, But there is just something undeniably unique about an isolated break to rest, to reflect, to be quiet, to pray, and to be in the background without any attention, so to speak. Periodic removal from decision-making and attention-seeking, if that's something that we struggle with, is a pattern that we see popping up again and again in the Bible. I mean, I could just spend hours this morning showing you all the places in the Bible that this is so real and prevalent. I'll just give you one really instructive example. Genesis 32, the story of Jacob, the famous patriarch. Many of you know that story. If you've been around the church, you've kind of navigated your Old Testament before. Many of you know the famous scene, this famous story where Jacob wrestles with this mysterious figure that Jacob will later say he wrestled face God himself. Right? He wrestles, he holds, holds on to him throughout the night, asks for the blessing, gets his hip wrenched out, and he gets renamed Israel, which means one who strives or wrestles with God. This is what Israel means. This is what the people of God means, those who wrestle with God. It's a famous scene. What many of us miss, and I've missed it in the past, I'll admit this, is what happens right before it. Anyone know? Right before the mysterious man shows up to wrestle with Jacob and to deal with him, you know what it is? It says that he is left alone. He is by himself. Takes his family, his livestock, his servants, takes everything he's in charge of. He sends it on to the other side of the fjord that he was at. And then he waits by himself and spends the night by himself. And that is when God showed up. And it happens over and over and over again. Jacob took time to be alone in context because he was about to face his brother Esau, whom he had cheated, whom he had lied to. And he was also essentially facing his unknown future because he had recently just fled his father-in-law. When Jacob went off from the crowd he was with because he was tired, he was afraid, and he was seeking clarity. The author and pastor Glenn Packiam reflects on Jacob's isolated wrestling with God in this way. He says, quote, The encounter altered the trajectory of his life and redeemed the failures of his past. And it happened when he was left alone. If we're going to deal with our fears and failures, no, but more than that, if, if we're going to come face to face with the only one who can heal us and restore us, we're going to have to make time to be alone with God. Do you have that in your life? Things just happen when you take space out of your normal rhythms of production and the temptations to perform. 
things just happen. If we do so with the intention to spend time with God in an uninterrupted way, his spirit brings things to the surface that otherwise might stay hidden out of your sight or out of your attention. I know for me, just to share a bit of my own life, I know when I retreat from work, my vocational work as a pastor, it usually takes a few days at least, maybe a full week, for the jitters and the anxieties to calm down. In the same way you get phantom vibrations in your pocket from a phone that isn't there. Anyone? Anyone? In the same way you get phantom vibrations from a phone that isn't there. Pastors, when they leave their vocational work for a bit, they get these phantom worries. Who will preach? Who will make the decision? Who will show up? Who will serve? Who will take care of that? And they're just dealing with all of waves and waves and waves of that. And I've learned over time, it's taken years for me actually, but I've learned what that is. Those phantoms, those feelings, those worries, those anxieties, that's the withdrawal from adrenaline. There's real withdrawal. And there's this, it's this beginning invitation to face your true self. Like just, there's nothing for you to do right now. You need to deal with you, Matt who you are. This is what happened to Jacob. The first time Jacob was asked his name, he was lying by his fa- to his father, right? Who are you? Which son are you? And he lied. You know, the next time he was asked his name, he was asked his, his name, what his name was by God when he was wrestling with him. He was having to deal with his past. He was having to deal with himself, who he really was. You have to deal with what the Holy Spirit is saying. We got to deal with this. You think you can keep bypassing it by doing more work and achieving more and performing more, but we need to deal with who you are. It was Tolstoy, right? Tolstoy, who said, quote, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. This is the threat of being a pastor all the time. I'll do big things for God. I just won't deal with who I am. You see, you can't change the world on sabbatical. (laughs) <laughs> you can only just face yourself. And so once the vocational adrenaline calms down, authentic awareness starts to come in. Awareness of grief, awareness of gratitude. These are the things that surface. So for me, I'll give you just a short list. Grief for letting the wrong ideas of leadership creep in. You know, when Israel asked for a king, the first king they, get, they got was who? Saul, right? Remember that? Remember what God says, warns them when they ask for a king? You can go there and look it up, 1 Samuel 8. Repeatedly, I think it's six times he says they're just going to take. They're going to take your sons and your daughters. They're going to take your servants. They're going to take your fields. They're going to take your money. They're just going to take, and they're going to take, and they're going to take, and they're going to take. You're going to regret this, but okay. Leaders fall victim to just taking and taking and taking and taking and taking. Grief over the need to be liked and the nagging worries of not letting, living up to people's expectations. You know, I have to deal with that. Grief for not spending adequate time with my family and my friends. You know, letting just work take over. Grief for not attending to limitations in myself and recognizing that I'm just not listening to my body. I'm not listening to the, what's happening and I'm maybe falling apart or atrophying and I need to rest. 
And all of this grief, by the way, I don't, I don't say this to you, you feel bad for me. This is wonderful. It's good news because what this grief does, this godly grief lends itself to his repentance and, and realignment and commitments and prior, like realigning my priorities and thinking, wait, what is, yeah, that's important. But, all, but gratitude also comes up, surfaces. Gratitude for privileges God has given, given me, um, have gone unnoticed for some time. Gratitude for my family and the stage of life I'm in. You know, sometimes we think so much about who we want to be and where we're going, we just forget to notice where we are and what is right in front of us. Gratitude for how wonderful this local body of believers is and all the serving that takes place and the fact that in actuality this place operates by God moving through you more than it does through me. Gratitude that I don't need to be anything other than a pastor and that the stacked expectations of the world, thinking that somehow I need to be a CEO, a professional therapist, and a cultural critic all at one, that's a lie that I don't have to continue to believe. I just need to be one who, 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 who preaches the gospel and prays and has a particular kind of presence when I'm in front of people that is ethical and good and true. I'm grateful for that kind of awareness. There are amazing people, by the way, that do those things, <laughs> and we need them. They're helpful, and it's important for pastors to know their boundaries and their calling and not brashly, brashly step outside of them. Once again, you know, if you use Saul as your example, when does he mess up? I'll tell you when he messes up. It's when he steps outside of his boundaries and he decides to become a priest and do the work of Samuel. And Samuel's like, you shouldn't have done that. You should have stayed in your lane. It's an incredible freeing and healthy feeling when I'm reminded that it's okay that I don't have to always have the answer for every problem. And that pastors are better when they seek counsel, they seek collaboration from people that have the answers, and they seek the Lord for questions, answers to questions that are just difficult and that elude us. But here's the thing. So let me wrap up this way. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about you for a minute. My prayer is that somewhere in this little reflection on Acts and my talk about sabbatical rest and the invitations to consider, might be an invitation for you to consider in your own unique stage of life. I'm cognizant. Believe me, I thought through this. I'm cognizant that that the rhythms and callings of my life, particularly vocationally, look very different than yours, right? Like, because you could be sitting there going, well, I wish I could take a month in July to just sit and be with Jesus. Like, I understand that. I do. And I'm sensitive to that. I recognize that you probably can't mirror my exact sabbatical rhythms. Um, and that's okay. And there's freedom for that. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in the churches. Like you have to work that out with the Lord with your own unique context. But within your, our freedom and our unique stages, I do think that if you're willing, I think that we as a church body, like you as a person, you can reflect on what temptations and challenges of performance and anxious striving you might struggle with or that you're facing right now or that you tend to face? What does it look like for you 
if you're willing to consider it. What does it look like for you to retreat in an appropriate way? Not, I'm not talking about escaping responsibility. I'm talking about engaging in responsibility well with maturity. And stepping out of it at times is how you engage in it appropriately. What does it look like for you to retreat, to spend chunks of deliberate time with Jesus so that you might further clarify your own griefs, the things of your past that need to be dealt with, the things of the current stage of your life? What does it look like for you to to narrow your focus on where God is leading you and to to have awareness of your own gratitudes and and your own particular callings? If, If... there's a, there's a lot of spiritual sages of old that break life up into thirds. So if that's helpful, here, here would be my stab at it just for a little bit. Are you just starting out in your adulthood? Is that you? You may not be in the thick of a career maybe, but so you're in this stage where you're filled with longings for big things like a marriage or a family or a career obviously, or you're just, you have a lot of wonderlust. This energy is God-given and I encourage it. It's worth you exploring. But what does it look like for you to periodically retreat for a few days maybe or a week or a few weeks maybe if you have that privilege to seek the Lord for for humility and direction? Like to figure out what is your holy discontents? Where is God calling you? What are you passionate about? What do you want to put your hands to? Trust me, accomplishment Achievement without a growing knowledge of who you truly are in Christ will cause damaging compromises in your life as you get older. Seek the Holy Spirit with an open hand and let him define what these discontents are, where your passions lie, and what place is he calling you to root yourself for the next three to five years maybe so that you gain some level of stability as you get your life together. Are you in the thick of the middle stage of adulthood, working a career or raising a family? In this stage, you've created some things probably. You've probably achieved or accomplished quite a bit. You can look, you know, you've got some stuff hanging on the wall. You've got a decent account. You can say, oh, look at my resume. These are things, these are good things. But there might be some aspects to your soul and character that could, that could be on the verge or already on a dangerous path of being neglected. You don't need to feel bad about your ambition if you're in this stage. I'm in this stage. You don't need to feel bad about your ambition, your accomplishments, your desire to achieve. You don't need to feel bad about your desire to have an impact. The Bible wholeheartedly encourages hard work and stretching ourselves. I believe, don't hear me wrong, because I talk about rest a lot around here. It is one of the core values of this church. I don't ever want you to misunderstand. I think you should work your hiney off. I think you should work hard heartily for the Lord. But I think you need to know when to stop and to say that's enough. And those lines get blurred sometimes. And so I believe that it's good to stretch ourselves for the sake of our families, for the sake of our careers, and for the sake of our communities. I believe that. But our Jesus also reminds us that it is foolish to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. It's foolish. It is futile. You do not want to be clutching your pearls while you climb into your coffin. Why? What does it look like for you in this stage to implement a daily, weekly, yearly stop 
to place yourself in silence and stillness before God. Maybe it's a weekend retreat once a year. Maybe, maybe it's a whole week where you stop all the hustle and bustle and you bring yourself into a, an intention and deliberate time with Jesus where your attention is not diffused with all of the, the responsibilities that you have. You need a rhythm where you're going to simply rest, read, reflect, pray about what possible compromises that you're making deep down that the Spirit is saying to you and nagging and saying, enough, this is not the life you wanted. Why are you continuing to live it? And maybe you're in the later stage where work has calmed down and, and maybe this is retirement for you and you're in that stage right now. Exhaustion from work or temptation, the temptation for ruthless performance, it's just maybe not your demon anymore. And if so, that's a welcome godly gift that I encourage you to embrace and enjoy. I do not know what that feels like yet. But there is still, this is what I do know, there is still a unique kind of work and contribution God is calling you to, if that's your stage. It just looks really different. If you're not straddled with the temptation of anxious performing and achievement, then I can assure you, your non-anxious presence in every room is desperately needed. Younger folks, people that are in the middle stage of life need people that walk into a room that aren't desperate to perform. That's a wonderful, God-given contribution that you can make to every room that you show up in. And that will be fueled by spending longer, richer portions of your week and your year where you are devoted to studying the way of Jesus and offering the offering of prayers. There is a stage of life coming for some of us if we live long enough where our contributions to the, to, to, to the neighborhood or to our church or to the city as, we, as our physicality changes, it just might look different or it might diminish. That is when we pray. That is when you say, I will lift up this community with my prayers and I will bless them. I will seek to be a blessing and not a curse in every room that I show up in. If you're in this stage, you're probably not struggling with the illusions of grandiosity and idealism. But this time with Jesus will shield you from cynicism that might creep in, pettiness that could creep in, and an overprotection of what you have achieved. The younger generation needs your guidance, your experience, your prayers of blessings and encouragements. We don't have a lot of sages anymore. Simply put, we all need, whatever stage you're in, and by the way, I'm sorry if I really misrepresented your stage of life. I'm doing the best I can. But we all need, whatever stage you're in and whatever unique context you're in, we all need rhythms of Sabbath, daily, weekly, yearly. For me, it's one day a week and once a year I take a time. And I'm still working out the seven-year thing. Times where we recognize the brevity of life and we remember that salvation comes from Jesus alone. And a time with him, time spent with him, undivided time with him, will bring refreshment. It will bring clarity. It will bring gratitude. And the world and your immediate community, your immediate circles of friends and family, they desperately need more of that these days. And you have the opportunity to contribute it. You have that opportunity. Please seize it. Take that opportunity. Figure it out. Play around with it. Figure out what it, Just take one stab at it this year, this coming year. This is what it's going to look like. And look, here's the thing. I'll say this as I wrap up. If you need help with there's so much more that I can get, say and give here. 
and I won't get into it today, but if you want help with this or you need guidance of what it looks like to do a spiritual retreat for a day, a weekend, a week, a month, please, nothing would make me happier than to spend the time with you talking through that. And I hope that this church continues to grow in, in figuring out what it means to Sabbath appropriately, daily, weekly, yearly. And so as you come to the table this morning, as you come to experience uh, the bread, the cup, think about what's coming to the surface. Think about what you heard. Don't dismiss it all, you know, if it doesn't connect with you. There is an invitation in it. What I'll remind you is what we try to remind us all every week that we're here. And this bread represents the, the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And this cup of wine represents his blood, the new covenant, a promise, you, assurance that you are saved in Christ, that, 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 that he has taken on our sin, that he has taken on our passion, that he has absorbed all of that, and we get something better in return, that we get innocence and we get reconciliation with the Father. And these are the things that fuel us, and these are the things that bind us as a community. And so if you take the time to pray, to think about these things, to come forward to this station or this station, taking the piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits, let us pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks this morning. It is good to be here as a body of believers. It is good to open your word and to read it. It is good to reflect on the compromises that we might have been making this week, this year, the last 10 years. Guide us in what it means to spend time with you, to figure out what it looks like to spend uninterrupted time with you so that we might be changed, so that we might be transformed, so that our presence might be a real gift to the people around us. This opportunity can come to any one of us, Lord, any one of us, no matter the circumstance. Thank you, Lord, this morning. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood that you shed. Thank you for the salvation that only comes through you alone and that you give freely to those who call upon you that believe and repent. That is a gift, and we give thanks. It's in Jesus' name, amen.